All right, as we continue our time in Luke, come now in Luke chapter 10, which is a pretty well-known story um, among stories in the gospel, and that is the story of the Good Samaritan, as it's probably entitled above your chapter there. Kind of leads us into another story that's going to be familiar, the story of Mary and Martha is going to be another uh, one that is pretty familiar for us. Before we get into the text itself, I want to make three comments generally on the context of the sermon this morning. Three that I hopefully will keep us from misunderstanding, guide us into proper application of this text. First of all, the end of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10 of Luke, you have Jesus Christ setting his face towards Jerusalem, calling the disciples to follow him. We talked about how that kind of resembles a bit of that a great commission call. As Jesus said, follow me. That would be go make disciples along with the promise, I am, behold, I am with you to the ends of the earth. And so you have kind of this, this great commission-like statement from Jesus of going, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in every village, primarily then that carries on for us in the church according to the great commission, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom by preaching of the word, and by maintaining and celebrating the ordinances laid out for us. Gospel proclamation, gospel of the kingdom. Then you have that butted right up against now the great commandment. So you have the great commission butted up against the great commandment. Immediately following the great commandment, we're going to look at Mary and Martha. And you see it kind of then moves to this relational, devotional aspect of the Christian life. I think it's important that we keep all three set because often what we do is we'll look at this great commission of Jesus telling us to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in word. And then we are followed with it by this great commandment, which is a call to love the Lord our God and to love others. And sometimes we can wipe out, oh, the, let's, let's rethink what God tells the church. It's not proclamation. It's just going and doing loving acts as if the great commandment tends to wipe out the Great Commission. And that's not the case. We have the Great Commission. We also have this Great Commandment, which, yes, belongs to the church collectively, but more specifically, it belongs to each and every Christian. To love the Lord your God and to love others of yourself. And then finally, once again, we're going to get to the end of Mary and Martha, and then it's a call back to sitting at the feet of Jesus and kind of that devotional life. And so they're communicating, emphasizing different things that shouldn't stand to compete and overrule one, but they all need to stand in their place. Gospel proclamation, the commission of making disciples, the commandment to love the Lord our God, to demonstrate love to one another, a devotional life of resting and sitting at the feet of Jesus. All of them take place. So the sermon this morning shouldn't rule out what's been said in the past or undermine what will be said in weeks ahead. Secondly, this text, as you heard it read, dealing with a foreigner in need, speaks quite candidly into where we find ourselves in the last week or two of the political upheaval that's taken place. It speaks into two things specifically. As we think about loving our neighbor, it's how do we think then, how do we apply it to loving the refugee, the immigrant, And how do we apply it to loving our unborn neighbor and the mother who would carry that precious life? 
The pulpit here is never a, a stump for Republican versus Democrat or capitalist versus socialist or, I don't know, you pick whatever your sides are. I don't know if the Lord in his kindness and sovereignty has brought us to this text and me in the pulpit, or it's more God in his sense of humor that has placed me in the pulpit at this moment. But within our church, I know there are, are very different political views of how we come at it. But I think the Bible can inform all of us what our heart and our spirit should be towards the refugee, towards the unborn. In the end, we'll draw some application from that. Thirdly, then, the immediate context, as Adam set up for us last week, we come through chapter 10, and Jesus has sent out the 72. It doesn't really tell us what happened, but then they return, and Jesus is speaking to them as he comes uh, to those final verses preceding our text. Jesus is rejoicing that God in his wisdom has decided to, to hide the things of the kingdom from the wise, from those who are learned in their own mind, and has revealed it to children, to the simple And in it, he is rejoicing in God's sovereign grace, specifically his grace of election, and that he will will show grace to whom he will show grace to. And even in Jesus then setting his face, heading towards Jerusalem, then indeed he will do everything that is needed to accomplish the Father's will in saving those whom he has chosen. And so Jesus is rejoicing in this. You see that right before our context. Rejoicing in God's wise plan, which reveals the kingdom to the simple, to the humble, to those who have faith, and it remains hidden from the wise and from the learned. And then you come to verse 25, and we cue up the lawyer, the wise and the learned, to give us an immediate example here of what has just gone before us, what has just been said. There's two questions that are going to be asked in this text and two simple answers. They're simple in getting to the answer. They're not so simple in living out. First question is, how shall I be justified? By grace through faith. There's the answer. I don't even need to preach it now. Second question is, how shall I treat my neighbor? With mercy and compassion. Two questions, two answers. Let's jump into the text and see how the Lord develops it for us. So Jesus begins this interaction. Actually, the lawyer begins this interaction. And so what we have here is an interaction between Jesus and a lawyer, and then it's going to move into a parable that Jesus gives to help further along the explanation um, to answer the question or redefine the question that the lawyer asks. First of all, when we think lawyer, we're not thinking of, um, you know, a, a litigator, attorney type of lawyer who we might think of today. It's not going to work that way. When it's speaking of lawyer, it's speaking of someone who literally is an expert in the Torah, an expert in the Old Testament law. So not necessarily a priest, but perhaps someone who is going to be an expert in the law. There seems to be a bit of a group or a crowd around because the lawyer stands up from this group and he asks Jesus a question. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a couple problems with this question. First of all, it's not asked in good faith. 
Luke tells us that right up front. The lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. All right, so it's a question that's not asked in good faith. He is trying to ensnare, to trap Jesus. Perhaps you've had these sort of encounters. I've had them before. They're super annoying where someone comes, they ask you a question, and at first you think they like genuinely are looking for a response, and you're like halfway through responding, and then they come in and correct you. And it's like they're not really wanting your input. They're like testing you. You know, it is, and don't do that. It's super annoying when, when you do that one. Um, no one wants to be quizzed uh, in their greeting. <clears throat> but that's what the lawyer's doing here. It is he's, he's testing, he's entrapping, he's trying to snare Jesus. As silly as it sounds, he is testing Jesus on his theology. I just want to pause there for a minute because it sounds silly, but yet, we do it very often. The church does it very often. And that we don't let Jesus define who he is. It's not, what does Jesus think of me? It's often, what, what do I think of Jesus? So when he says he is absolutely sovereign, when he rejoices that he reveals himself to whom he chooses to reveal himself, do we bristle under that and think, no, that's not fair. Let's redefine our Jesus. Or when Jesus says things in the Bible, asks a call of us to uh, let the dead bury their dead, forsake all and follow me. And we think, oh, let's, let's reshape that because Jesus wouldn't really have that high of a call of discipleship in our life. Or he works against our sensibilities or he interrupts our agenda and we begin to then put Jesus to the test. That He must fit our prescribed notion of what Jesus should be. And so in a real sense, that's what the lawyer is doing here. He's putting Jesus to the test. Will Jesus pass his test of what he thinks he should be? Secondly, we see a problem with his question in the way it's asked. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To put it more literally as it would read, having performed what will I inherit eternal life? It assumes that the answer to eternal life rests within, resides within, the lawyer himself. The problem is out there. I need to get eternal life. The answer is within. That's completely flip-flop. He should be looking to Jesus, resting in Jesus for this answer. But it's what do I do? What must I perform that I will inherit eternal life? So Jesus answers by he of course he sees right through it and he's not going to be entrapped and snared by this man so he answers in this way in verse 26 what is written in the law how do you read it you know it's kind of listen you're an expert in the law you tell me how you inherit eternal life how do you read it we know the law we know the scripture is authoritative what's it say Probably not the answer the lawyer was looking for, but he answers back and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes, he gets it right. He gives the correct answer. You go to Deuteronomy 6, of loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. Leviticus 19, which lies out your responsibility, your duty to your neighbor. We've seen earlier, Matthew 22, how he would summarize the law as this is the fulfillment, the obeying the whole commands of the law, is this. So 
good job. He got the answer right as Jesus put the test back to him. He gives the answer, gets it right, and then Jesus responds. Verse 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It assumes one thing, the way Jesus responds, is that the lawyer's not currently doing it. We'll see in just a moment the response of the lawyer to Jesus then is his attempt to justify himself. But here is the question of justification. What must we do to be right with God? What must we do to have life, to have eternal life? The law lays it out. It's simple. Love the God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's one problem, right? It's not going to happen. It's impossible. What the law requires, the law doesn't provide in itself. You just think of the first, to love God, who is supremely worthy and supremely lovable and generous and gracious. And yet we don't go five minutes with totally self-sacrificing love for God, unmixed by selfish and prideful motives, unmixed with fear of man and pursuit of earthly pleasures. We don't go five minutes. Your best moment singing a song this morning was not the worship that is needed to be right with God, to be justified with God. Yet the impulse is to justify yourself. That is what the lawyer is going to do. I just want to pause here and hammer on this in the gospel. If if you're resting in this and rejoicing, then rejoice in the truth that is about to be said. If you are looking for multiple ways to stand right before God, then listen, there's one way. By grace, through faith, Jesus Christ, we've reviewed it in Luke. He has lived perfectly and righteously. He did love God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might and all his strength. And we'll see he did love his neighbor as himself. He was the righteous one who fulfilled the law. We believe in that. That is where our faith rests. And then in the end, He set his face towards Jerusalem and that indeed he would love his neighbor as himself all the way to the point where God just doesn't eventually dismiss this call of the law so that he might show us grace. Instead, it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ all the way to the cross and then he accepts the punishment for our breaking that law over and over and over again. By grace alone, through faith alone, there's nothing to be added to that. The lawyer looks for loopholes. He, he, he wants to see, he seems to assume that he's loving God as he should, because his only question is about loving neighbor. But he looks for loopholes in it. Let's just say by some impossible chance, you are loving God like you should. Well, then the next line, love your neighbor as yourself that you are as committed to the well-being and success of your neighbor as you are to your own. You know, maybe you have good moments here and there where you're selfless and patient and encouraging and merciful. We all do. But we have a lot of selfish, prideful, impatient moments. 
where we're much more concerned about our well-being and our success and our agenda and our bottom line than we are someone else's. It's an impossible standard for us to meet here. R.C. Sproul, as he has a commentary, just a short little devotional commentary on Luke, he, he talks about nobody loving God as they should and nobody loving others as they should, and yet somehow we tend to take comfort then in universal failure. You know, like, well, as I look around, I'm probably better than at least 90% of you. And you all have failed. Even the people who are better than me fail. And so we take this kind of approach that because of universal standard, uh, universal failure, God is going to throw out his standard. That's not how it works. So when we see what we're called to, it should drive us to Christ. Not to performance, not to get better so we can merit some sort of favor, but should drive us to God who alone justifies. There's not a greater theme or more important theme for you to listen to than justification by grace alone, through faith alone. So Jesus then answers that first question, how shall I inherit eternal life? And he gives an impossible command that drives us back to Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. But then that leads then to the second question. And so the lawyer, as it says here, um, verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So again, maybe he's assuming that he's loved God as he should. And so he wants to know, well, if I can just limit my neighbor, probably to a certain group of people who are in his Jewish, religious, social, economic circle, if I love them according to the standard that I set to love them, then I can justify myself. And so Jesus is going to provide then this story, this parable, which totally changes the question that is asked. All right, so verse 30, leaning down. So Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Context, you have uh, Jerusalem, You have Jericho. A lot of people live in Jericho who travel to Jerusalem to worship, including the priests and the Levites um, and these folks. So the Jericho road is going to be a well-traveled road. As you read commentators, it wasn't a very safe road to travel. It's kind of winding. It gets narrow. So there's places where there's very little passage way to get through. There's parts where it stands just on a precipice. Um, with a fall off to the side here. And so, again, it's not an easy, simple road to travel. Some commentators say it was nicknamed the Valley of Death. So you wouldn't want to travel it by yourself. So as Jesus tells the story to the lawyer, it's not hard for him to imagine what is taking place. So he lays out the story here. You have a man, he doesn't really identify who this person is. 
you're led to think it's probably a Jewish person, but you don't know. And here he lays half dead, beaten on the side of the road. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. You know, they're more than likely, they have been traveling to Jerusalem to lead the people in worship, to recite the law to them, to recite from the prophets to them. Now they're done leading their temple worship, going back, see this man in distress, and want nothing to do with it. A priest, a Levite, would simply be kind of that next level below the priest, who again would be helping with temple worship. And then Jesus introduces a surprise character into the story here in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the man lying on the road. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus flips the question to the lawyer. The question is no longer, who is my neighbor? The question is, what does it mean to be showed mercy? And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. To say, a Samaritan. The Samaritans were, you know, historically... They, they have their own version of the Torah. They worship in a different place. And even Jesus, in his compassion... to and so this kind of evil. So for the lawyer to come and wants to know, he flips the thing upside down, completely changes the question. How are we? Is that we get the question right. It is, are we being neighborly? It is not an all-out brawl about who is our neighbor. We tend to err on two different sides of this, I think. One, we can err where we have such an, an insulated view of who we are accountable to and who we are to be merciful that our, our neighbor doesn't extend you know, outside of the house we live in. And so my neighbor starts at home and it stays at home. That's my small little level of accountability. It's comfortable. I get it. Yes, it is a priority. The Lord's called me to care for my family, and so that is my neighborhood, is my home. And we start to create these kind of artificial boundaries of who our neighbor is. I think the other pitfall that we fall into is becoming so obsessed with who our neighbor is that we fail to act neighborly. The question becomes an argument, who is my neighbor? And so it, it works this way. Someone gets, a, a, they're passionate about one thing, <clears throat> and they have, grow a big blind spot to every, everybody else. So my neighbor is X, and you forget everyone else around you, and then you start to condemn everyone else who doesn't have the exact same neighbor that you have, who doesn't prioritize their neighbors the same way. It's happened in this refugee crisis. You start reading, and I think it becomes dangerous when people start attaching, if you're a Christian, then you will. If you're the church, you're not the church. If you're not, and then pick some specific policy of addressing uh, the refugees or the unborn or however it might be. 
Now, I'm not saying there's not a platform for discussing these things politically. Again, we'll get into it here in just a moment. But let's start with the right question. How are we a neighbor? Not fighting over who is our neighbor. It is complex. It's difficult. There's a big difference between the one in need we see on TV compared to the one in need who we walk out the door and see. They're both our neighbor. That's what this passage is telling us. And it doesn't really tell us who should gain priority or how we should work through it. It's saying it's the wrong question to try to dissect and fight who falls into the category of being worthy of me being neighborly too. It's a universal call. And again, it's meant to be overwhelming because it drives us back to Christ. I mean, how are you going to find out who all is in need? How are you going to, on a universal, on this humanity scale, reach out and be a neighbor to everyone? And it can be paralyzing at times. And yet the call is to action towards our neighbor. Listen to this. It's kind of an extended quote, but I think it is worth listening to by G.K. Chesterton. He says, Neighbor is not so much a concept to be defined or or debated, but a flesh and blood person in the ditch waiting to be served. You can't define your neighbor in a vacuum in advance. You can only be a neighbor when the moment of mercy arrives. We make our friends, we find our passions, but God gives us our neighbor. The old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it spoke not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is, which is personal, emotional, or even pleasurable. But we have to love our neighbor because he is there. <laughs> a much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us. The idea of loving our neighbor is beautiful to think about so long as it remains an idealized, abstract concept. But the concrete reality of loving our neighbor, that all-too-real, exasperating person that we would not have chosen and we might prefer to escape, strips the beauty away. Or so we're tempted to think. In truth, the beauty of idealized love is imaginary, and the beauty of real love is revealed in self-dying, unchosen call to love the sinner who is given to us. So, does your neighbor include the one sitting behind you? If you're in the back row, this still applies to you. Yes. Does your neighbor include the person who lives in the house that's next door to you? Yes. Does your neighbor include the foster family that you don't even know yet who just needs some encouragement and some help? Yes. Does your neighbor include an unborn child and the mother who is carrying that child and contemplating whether to abort it or to keep the child? Yes. Does your neighbor include a Syrian refugee? Yes. The debate and the argument isn't, let me prove who my neighbor is and who my neighbor isn't. The debate, or not debate, the command is, be a neighbor. 
the one who crosses your path on a regular basis, the one who is in your face, the one who lives in, in, on your street, are you being neighborly to them? The specific group of people or, or specific cause that God has given you a passion for and you feel convinced of the Spirit to pursue them with love, is that group, is that person your neighbor? Yes. Then be a neighbor to them. I think, again, I'm not pretending it's not complicated how we are a neighbor to someone we see on TV compared to how we're a neighbor we see to someone next door and they're both in need. But we overcomplicate it when the fight only becomes about who our neighbor is and not are we acting neighborly towards them. And I'm convinced that the Lord works in people and gives people specific passion and heart that some care desperately for the orphan. Should we all, and as a church, as a Christian, care for the orphan and the poor? And the, yes. For some, that heart is going to glow and they need to be a neighbor to that person. For some, it might boil much further down into that one or two people in your community that are difficult to love, take a lot of time, you see little fruit from it, but that is your neighbor. You don't just get to pick someone as that is, defines my neighbor, no one else, and I condemn anyone who disagrees with me. All right, so for the question being... Not being who is your neighbor. I spent a lot of time on that. Um, so, who is your neighbor? You say the person, and the answer is yes. And here's the command, be neighborly. All right, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be neighborly? Five things, and we'll finish with this. <clears throat> First, to be a good neighbor is to see distress. We're just seeing what the Samaritan did here. He sees distress. Again, you're not so insulated, you're not so focused on self that you don't even notice when there's need and distress around you. It sees distress, looks beyond your own agenda and your own concerns. Secondly, it responds internally with a heart of compassion. When you see need, you should be moved with compassion. It should be less about judgment, less about comparing yourself, and more about pity and mercy. How many times have we seen this in Luke? That is what the kingdom is marked by. One who loves mercy and shows mercy. Judge not that you be not judged. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You need to see distress, and as a neighbor, you should be moved with compassion, with mercy, with pity. Third, it responds externally with practical efforts to relieve distress. You know, it goes beyond just feeling bad for someone. I think this is where the breakdown can get, because sometimes we think on only a global sense, and, and there is a global sense to think about. But sometimes we think that way that it just becomes paralyzing. What can I actually do? Well, the next orphan care event, whenever that is, come to that. <laughs> There's something you can do. It takes practical steps to meet that need, to care, to show compassion, 
to show mercy. It doesn't create artificial boundaries in order to keep yourself from getting involved. Fourth, and this was where it gets a little more difficult, it makes costly sacrifices of time and money. Not always, but sometimes. And the neighbor needs to be ready to step up and move forward in that way. It will cost, and that should not prohibit us from getting involved. Even if it means forfeiting some of our own comfort, forfeiting some of our own time, forfeiting, as I like to joke about, my me time, to be involved with somebody else. Martin Luther King spoke on this text the night before he was killed, actually, at the Mason Temple in Tennessee. He spoke from this text. And as he looked at the three people who passed by, and this is weird, we typically quote Martin Luther, right? Not Martin Luther King, but as as the three people that passed by the person in distress on the side of the road, he says, here's the difference. The priest, the Levite, they ask, what will happen to me if I help this person? You know, for the priest, he probably would become unclean, touching someone who was a Samaritan, someone who was dead or nearly dead in this way. There may have been a chance that if I stop to help, there's a good chance the robbers are still around, they're going to ambush me. And so what's going to happen to me if I help? Bad things probably I'm passing on. Whereas the Samaritan asks, what is going to happen to this person if I don't help? It counts the costs differently. A neighbor will make those costly sacrifices of time, money, energy. And you're like me. Sometimes giving up two hours on a Saturday afternoon can feel very costly. But it takes the effort. Finally, the last, the fifth one, is a neighbor shows mercy even when it crosses lines of creed, race, social, economic standards. Beyond just the people who are most like you and you're most comfortable with. A neighbor crosses those boundaries. Social, economic, racial, artificial lines that we put around who our neighbor is. Finally, don't forget the context to which we're called to mercy. It's from someone not seeking to justify yourself because you're doing good, merciful deeds. And if I can, you know, pick the, the hardest neighbor to love, somehow that's going to justify me a little more. You're moved to mercy because you humbly realize you have failed to love God as you should, love your neighbor as you should, and then you realize and you rest in the incredible mercy extended to you. That is your only hope is mercy. The person who receives mercy should love mercy for others. Luke's told us that earlier. Too often we receive mercy... And then we stand as a judge on everybody else. You know, I made something out of my life, they should make something out of their life. Or, I've received mercy, but now I'm going to judge how everybody else is a neighbor. It's not the point. 
of judging who your neighbor is. A couple last thoughts and we'll be done. First of all, I think some commentators early on, Augustine and Luther and some of them, maybe go a bit far in the comparisons. But Jesus is the better neighbor. We didn't just lay on the side of the road, wounded and half dead. We laid dead in our sin and our trespasses. Jesus didn't just cross the road to help our need. He came from heaven, crossed space and time, humbled himself to meet our need. He didn't give a couple days and a couple coins to help us on our way. He gave himself in soul-aching gut-wrenching agony on the cross as the Father would turn His face away and He would cry out, Why has God forsaken me? He's the better neighbor. So again, it's not be the Samaritan. It's look to Jesus, rest in Jesus as you receive that mercy, show mercy Again, we don't often address political issues directly from the pulpit. That's not how we're geared to do it. But I do think there's, there's two just applications for it. From what we heard this morning is that our hearts should be moved with compassion and pity for those in need. We should be quick to extend mercy and compassion to the refugee. We should invite in the foreigner and demonstrate love and self-sacrificing care that extends beyond racial, social, economic boundaries. I'm not making a statement on political policy or pretending like I know all the information there is to know about uh, national security and how that relates to immigration and all that. I'm saying, informed by the word of God, we should be moved with compassion when we see someone in need and we should be neighborly towards them. Secondly, our hearts should be moved with compassion and pity for the unborn. We should never condone the murder, and we should fight for the most vulnerable. We should also have compassion for single moms and for kids raised in impoverished and abusive situations. Again, if we're fighting for our neighbor, that unborn child who can't fight for themselves, is our neighbor. I get you might disagree on policy and what effectively helps that person the most, but I think we should be informed first by the word of God, and that should set our heart on not arguing who is our neighbor, but how are we a neighbor. And not just to the person on TV who we maybe don't know exactly how to wrap our arms around, the person the Lord puts right in front of you who you didn't choose to be your neighbor. Again, as a church family, I know we're not going to agree on how to best politically address issues like this, moving on kind of in general application. But we all need to be committed to the word of God over any ideology and let that inform us who our neighbor is, and how we treat our neighbor. We are to be people who are not prideful and selfish, comparing ourselves to one another, but are humble, receiving moment by moment. Mercy has been extended to us. That's the only reason that we can inherit eternal life and then turn and extend that mercy 
whom the Lord puts in your life and on your heart. And that we rejoice in Jesus Christ, who indeed is a better neighbor than the Samaritan than we'll ever be. And that is our only hope. Lord, I thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I thank you that your word speaks directly into our context in life. Lord, I pray that it was handled fairly and justly. Lord, if things were misspoken by your spirit, you correct them in the heart and minds of your hearers. Might we be a people who don't demand and seek unity based on anything outside of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our love for one another. Lord, that we would rest wholly and totally and completely upon you for our justification. Lord, and that we would love mercy for one another, and by your grace you would grow us and teach us how to be more consistent, patient, merciful neighbors. Lord, to each person who we encounter. Actually, just a moment, remain with your heads bowed there, your eyes closed, invite the worship team up.